something. We are jumping back into a, um, our Summer of Psalm series, and I'm, I, I say jumping back into because this is, this is something we started six years ago now. Uh, that summer, we started a, a, what we expected to take five years or five summers, each working through a different book of the Psalms. So if you didn't know, the 150 Psalms are divided up into five books. Each has a theme. And then COVID hit, and so we didn't do this, uh, we didn't do it, uh, we did do it last year, but we didn't do the year before that, and so we are wrapping up, and I'm going to have to figure out something different to do next summer. But each of these books have a different theme that we've been sitting in and, and dwelling in each summer, and the first book's theme was, was confrontation. It was really God um, um, confronting His people with, with their sin, with their rebellion, and, and, with, and with His love as well. Book two was all about communication and, and it's really about processing and understanding, like, like who is this God that, that, that we are a people of? Book three was about devastation uh, and, and, and the devastation that came from God's people being taken into exile. Book four was all about maturation, about how God didn't abandon his people in, in exile, didn't give them the silent treatment, but was with them and through them they grew and matured. And now this summer... In book five, we're sitting in restoration. We're sitting in restoration because as we'll see in Psalm 107, book five kicks off with an awareness uh, of, of God's people returning from exile, of God restoring them to the promised land. And so this, so Israel and the psalmist, as we read and go through this, you're going to notice that they're describing an already restoration, and for us, what we know and, un and understand about our place in redemptive history, we're actually anticipating and looking forward to a full consummation and, and restoration to come. And so there's that already but not yet tension as we have it baked in. And so I'm going to read Psalm 107 to kick us off. This is the first Psalm in book five. And yes, I'm going to read all 43 verses because they're beautiful. And, and, and this psalm is calling us to consider God's love, his steadfast love in its entirety. So we're going to do that. All right, let me read starting in verse 1. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. Some... Let me pause here. This is the beginning of each of four different stanzas that have a theme we're going to talk about, so I just want to point that out to you as we go. Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of men. For he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. Some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons. For they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. So he bowed their hearts down with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and burst their bonds apart. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of men. For he shatters the doors of bronze and cuts in two the bars of iron. Some 
were fools through their sinful ways, and because of their iniquities suffered affliction. They loathed any kind of food, and they drew near to the gates of death. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He sent out his word and healed them, and delivered them from their destruction. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man, and let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of his deeds in songs of joy. Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business in the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men, and they were at their wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people, and praise him in the assembly of the elders. Kind of changes tune here. He's done the four, four stanzas, and he kind of does almost like a, a reframing and a summary of, of everything he said so far. He says, the psalmist says, He turns rivers into a desert. Springs of water into thirsty ground, a fruitful land into a salty waste because of the evil of its inhabitants. He turns a desert into pools of water, a parched land into springs of water, and there he lets the hungry dwell, and they establish a city to live in. They sow fields and plant vineyards and, gain, and get a fruitful yield. By his blessing, they multiply greatly, and he does not let their livestock diminish when they are diminished and brought low through the oppression, evil, and sorrow, he pours contempt on princes and makes them wander in trackless wastes. In other words, he makes princes become the wandering and lost that we began with. But he raises up the needy out of affliction and makes their families like flocks. The upright see it and are glad, and all wickedness shuts its mouth. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, make us wise. Make us wise through your word. Help us to consider these things and help our consideration of these things reflect and help us to see the places where we are chained and not free, where we are broken and could be healed, where we are guilty and could taste mercy where we are lost and could be found. Lord, I pray, do that work and help us to rest in it. We pray, Lord, in your name. Amen. So I'm pretty sure that this is a universal parenting thing, but I've actually never asked this before. So I could be completely wrong. Wouldn't be the first time. However, I'm pretty sure it's universal that at, every, at some point, every parent and their kid does this strange ritual and competition of who loves who more, right? I love you. Well, I love you more. I love you more than that. Well, no, I love you way more than you ever could. I love you most. I love you mostest, okay? Um, our son, Ransom, I have loved the, the, the particular pattern that he, he does this with. Um, I'm pretty sure he, he picked this up from a book that was, yes, actually about God's love. And he says, I love you to the moon and back. 
And I say, well, I love you to Jupiter and back. He says, well, I love you to Saturn and back. I'm like, I love you to Pluto and back. And he says, I love you to Pluto and back 30 times. And I'm like, okay, I can count higher, man. I'm going to win this one. No. <laughs> it sounds silly, and it is silly, and it's fun, it's amazing, but it's important. It's, it's a delighting in him that, that actually sets him free, that anchors him in a love so that he can know and he is reassured because there are so many things in this world that make it hard to remember how much we are loved. They are word pictures that describe a depth and breadth of love. It's a way that we consider, that he, he's able to consider my love for him anew. Verse 43 um, says this, at the very end of the psalm, we, the psalmist helps us see and understand where he's going with this, why he is celebrating this, and why he is extolling the, God's steadfast love in the first place. He says, whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. The word consider there and, and the word for attend, like they mean the same thing. They're two different ways of saying the same thing, two different emphases, and, and they mean to puzzle, to, to stare at, to be enraptured by, to ponder, to, to chew on, to, to percolate in, to, to figure out God's love. Why would we need to, why would we need to do that? Why would we need to discuss why would we need to ponder that instead of just like, well, we know, we know God's love. God loves us, right? Well, it's one thing for me to tell Ransom, I love you, and it's another thing to be like, to be with him and, and, and toward him in saying to Pluto and back three billion times over. We don't just need to know in some kind of conceptual or intellectual sense that God loves us with this steadfast love. We need to Taste and see that he is good. And unless you have ga so gazed upon God's steadfast love that you are confused by it, like, you should be confused when we read this because it's ludicrous. It's silly. There is no human reason why God should love a people who are the ones that got themselves into prison in the first place. There is no reason for God to love a people who are helpless. There is no reason for God to love a people who are so foolish that they become addicted to something and are enslaved to their desires. It's silly. How is that possible that God could love us? If you, have, if, if you, if you don't gaze and ponder God's love and to that point, we should ask whether we understand it at all. Because if God's love makes sense then there is a guarantee that you do not see yourself and or God rightly and accurately. Psalm 107 is way more than a metaphor about how much God loves us. It's also an invitation into how God's steadfast love transforms us. The word wisdom um, in here, when he says, uh, the wise consider. Biblically, whenever you, hear, you, you, you read the word wisdom in Scripture, I want you to use the definition of um, uh, godly art, sorry, skill in the art of godly living. It's my favorite definition. I think it's, it's a great way to understand it. But when, he talks, when it talks about becoming wise, the way that we gain skill in the art of godly living is not from watching another YouTube channel on uh, you know, how best to use AI and save time, right? 
Y'all are like, oh my God, I'm so exhausted by that. Yeah, so is everybody except the people tweeting it, okay? <laughs> Wisdom, to become wise, to mature, is to have a transformed character through an encounter with the living God. And so when you put that together with the considering and the pondering, what the psalmist is actually saying here is that to gaze upon God's steadfast love is to be transformed and grown by it. To gaze upon God's steadfast love is to encounter the living God himself, God's character and his wondrous works, his deeds and his being are inseparable. To gaze upon God's love for us is actually to be with him and to be experiencing it. This is not a place I ever expected to quote Nietzsche. But he has some bad news, and he's right about this, that, that when you gaze into the abyss, the abyss gazes back. But the good news is, is that God's steadfast love is far greater than any abyss. Because when you stare into God's steadfast love, the living God who loves you stares back. And he, you can't leave that unchanged. So that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to Gaze into the living God's eyes, the, the, the Father, who He is, how he, how he loves us through these two themes that the psalmist is focusing on when he, says, when he says steadfast love, when he says God's steadfast love, he's really emphasizing two themes. And the first is this, God's personal rescue. Those four stanzas that we read, verses 4 through 32, is, are all about God's personal rescue. They each vividly describe Completely different groups of people, completely different circumstances, completely different needs, and yet an identically, an utterly identical rescue. And the heart and the love and the, the God behind them. Let's walk through it. Verses four through nine, that first stanza, are talking about orphans who've been found. You heard the language that, that, that it used. For he satisfies the longing of the soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. It's not just concrete, tangible, physical things that he's talking about. It's actually the deep soul level stuff. The, man, I wish this were different thing. Not just the, I need a snack. And his answer to that is to bring a city that we can dwell in, to bring us to a home. This is describing, describing a loving father. The second stanza is describing rebels who've, who've been freed. Right? Um, but... We, we, okay, let's be honest about here. We love the rebel, right? Like, I don't care if we're talking about Star Wars or, or, or the, the Revolutionary War. The rebel is on the right side of the history, right? No. No, not, 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 not how the psalmist is saying. He says, he says in verse 11, For they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. In every, in every way, we can, on the outside, do the right thing and yet internally be rebelling against God because it becomes a source of our self-salvation. Or we can be doing the wrong thing, even for good reasons. It doesn't matter. It's still the same. We are imprisoned by that. And if there's anything that we as an American culture hate more than that, it is not being free. We make an idol out of freedom and liberty in ways that are like, hold my beer to Israel. Okay? We need a merciful king. 
We need a merciful king who can declare our freedom and our freedom happen in the instance that it is declared. We, that, that, is a, that is a power, that is a, a, decree, a royal decree far greater than any other human king. We need a king whose words and whose actions and deeds are inseparable from each other and are instantaneous in their utterance. 17 through 22 describes fools who are then healed. Now, it may sound weird to, to, to attach you know, wisdom and foolishness to health and sickness, but the way that Scripture understands wisdom and also the way that Scripture understands um, um, sickness is it actually has a category for what's being described here, which is that our, I think the, the technical term is um, foolishness, I'm censoring myself, um, we cause a lot of our own problems, right? And sometimes in our pursuit of something or in our trying to anesthetize ourselves uh, over, 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 for the longings that we wish we had satisfied in verse 9, we become addicted to things. We become enslaved to our desires. It doesn't matter what it is. It could be chemical. It could be behavioral. It could be digital. It could be all kinds of things. And it, it affects us. It's not innocent. It backfills into our hearts. It changes us. It deforms us. And, and, and makes it more difficult to live as the image bearers God created us to be. But guess what? God says you don't need rehab. You need his word. It says that his word was the one, was the thing, was the catalyst that healed that sickness. It was the word that restored and delivered them from their distress. This is God functioning as a wise friend, but an actually wise friend, you know, not like Job's friends who like had all kinds of great advice, right? We all have friends like that. Some of them are in this room. It's okay because we're all fools, right? We need a wise friend that, with a wisdom only God can provide. 23 verses 32, I think this is my, if I had to pick one, that's my favorite. It, it's also the one that makes me cringe the most, right? The sinking are saved, when it says, some went down into the sea in ships doing business on the great waters, what that passage and that stanza is talking about are people who know what they're doing, who are skilled. I, I like to call them gazelles, right? Because, because they just kind of effortlessly bound and float from thing to thing, and you're just like, how do you do that? What is wrong with me that I can't like, just go through life like that? And what the stanza describes is actually like, actually their courage is melting away in front of a storm, that they got in over their head, that even though they are omnicompetent and they um, seem to think that they know what they're doing, they're doing, they are still finite. They're still little. They're still image bearers and not the one whose image they bear. For that, we need a Lord of Lords. We need a God of gods. We need the, the, high, the most high God. We need someone who is actually over and above even the natural world in order to save us from our overconfidence. What the psalmist is doing is showing a four-dimensional God, a 4D God. And it's funny to me because we have all these categories for each other, right? We know people are complicated. We know people are complex. We know people aren't just one-dimensional or who they say they are on Facebook, or at least we consciously know that even though we treat them that way, right? Why do we act like God's one-dimensional too? 
Like, why do we just pick one or two of maybe these aspects of God, either you know, a loving father, a merciful king, a wise friend, or the, the, the most high God? Like, why do we just pick one or two of those, if we're really spiritually, we pick two, right? Um, that we love to focus on and then ignore the other ones. I think it's because we're afraid of what that might require. Not even require, but invite us into. Right? I think we're afraid of what that might invite us into because putting your faith in anyone or anything other than ourselves for our rescue is and can be terrifying. You might have noticed in, in verse 28 and 29, I want to reread it to refresh our memory, but this, this should sound familiar to you if, you've, if you're familiar with the Gospels at all. It says, Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. In the Gospel of Mark, chapter 4, the, the disciples and Jesus are trying to get away. They're trying to get to rest because, man, the response to Jesus' teaching has been way more than the disciples were ready for and prepared for, and they were going to go across the Sea of Galilee and, because if they kept walking, then people would just keep following them, right? And that's not helpful. So they got on a boat, and they went across the Sea of, of Galilee. It's important to remember that these disciples... They knew what they were doing. It wasn't like me trying to like navigate a boat in, in a, a massive body of water. That would, you should not put me in charge of that. I should neither lead us in singing nor drive a boat, okay? But these are, these are, most of the disciples were fishermen. They were very familiar with this. They've tackled storms before. Something about this one was so bad and so severe that they just started freaking out, okay? In the middle of the storm... While they're freaking out, trying to like stay afloat, Jesus is taking a nap. And he's not like, you know, below deck or something where like, okay, it might be a little bit crazier, but there's no wind and rain. He's at the stern. He's at the front of the boat that moves around the most in a storm. And he's sleeping. And the disciples aren't like concerned about like his sleeping or like, wake up, you probably didn't notice. No, they're like, they, they make some assumptions here. They say, don't you care that we're perishing? Don't you care that we are perishing? I'm going to come back to that in a second. Because Jesus, no matter what he thought about how they phrased that or framed that, his reaction is to stand up, to speak with his words, and to, in that instance of utterance, Make the sea calm and still. He says, peace, be still. And the sea was. And the stillness, the word for stillness in that passage for the sea was like motionless, as in not even the little ripples of wake. It was like a mirror of glass. Okay. The disciples didn't consider his care. They didn't consider his love because... He didn't consider whether Jesus could save them because they didn't know yet whether Jesus loved them through a storm and back. Never mind to the moon and back, or Pluto and back. I love the way that Jesus responds to this after they start freaking out again, but because he has power over the thing they were freaking out before. They're like, who is this then who can calm nature with his words? In Mark chapter 40, verse 4, Sorry, chapter 4, verse 40, it says that he, Jesus, said to them, why are you so afraid? 
In the literal translation, have, have you still no faith? But our, our, the way that our jargon works and as modern Westerners is like, that sounds like snarky and sarcastic, right? Like, where's your faith? Like, or, have you still no faith? Like, don't you get it? You numbskulls, I'm barely tolerating you now, okay? That's not the tone here. It's where is your faith? It's not a rhetorical question. He's inviting them to consider how much they have seen him through only one dimension instead of four or more. You see, I had a whole list here because right, a storm, if you think about it, is a, is a crisis event, right? It's, it's a thing that's happening. It's a circumstance in the moment. But exile, what Israel are, is returning from, that's not just an event. For, some, for, for at least a generation, that was all they knew. They're born in exile. It wasn't a crisis event. It was an ongoing condition. It was chronic. And in the midst of that, Jesus' question is still important for them as it was us, which is what or who have you put your faith in? See, I, 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 like I said, I, I had a whole list of different kinds of really cool questions and different aspects where this could be that we could kind of like, you know, try on and discard whether it fit. And I actually... It actually kind of all boils down to one question here. What do you need to finally rest? And when I say rest, I mean like rest. Like at a soul level. I'm not talking about a day off. I'm not talking about a vacation. I'm not even talking about a a weekend. I'm talking about what do you need to feel like maybe you can finally be okay? To stop striving. To not be stressing. Is it, is it something that you, you feel like you, you can do maybe only after you've achieved something, whether that's like in, in, in work or some personal goal? It could be it could be like, I just, I just want to feel like I have some freedom. I would just want to have some control over my schedule. If you're a parent of a child under eight, can, you, can I get an amen? Okay? It's all valid. That's not what I'm talking about, though. I'm saying, what do you need to be able to rest to know that you're loved? To not need approval, even agreement. Is it, is it just to feel differently first? Is it to be less stressed? Is it to have an easier day to day? Like, hear me. Do you realize, like, even as I'm saying this, that's the point of, of rest. Because the day to day isn't easier. If you're waiting to rest until that gets easier, you will never rest. I mean that circumstantially and existentially. Because whether your storm is literal, I mean, it is pouring, raining, but I don't think we can call that a storm. It's saturating everything, but there is no thunder and lightning. We're not in any danger, right? It doesn't matter. Whether your storm is literal or metaphorical, a crisis event or a chronic condition, whether it is external or internal, you need to hear the Lord say, over all creation, every circumstance, and yes, your experience, Peace. Be still. He can do that even if you feel unable. That's the second theme 
for Psalm 107 that the psalmist is getting into. It's God's pervasive rest. In verses 33 through 42, he continues on, and it's, it's, kind of, it's a little bit re- repetitive, but you probably noticed that it changes in tone. It's not some individuals. It is this kind of cosmic reframing. He's expanding the refrain that we saw in verses 4 through 32 that you probably heard, and I tried to vocally read it this way so that you could, we, could, we could notice it and identify it, but there's a refrain in every single one of those four stanzas that he's now unfolding in verses 33 through 42. And that refrain is this. It comes in verse 6, 13, 19, and 28, exact same words. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. Two sides, same coin. Upon the cry, God's deliverance came. There is no daylight between them. That is a God of steadfast love. But I want you to notice something. What does it say that they are delivered from? Their distress. Does it say God rescued them from your, their terrible boss? Or from their child's behavior? Or from their... Let's just, can we be real? Like, let's say you feel like you, you're you know, not going to ask you to raise your hand. Get your poker face on now, okay? He didn't rescue them from your terrible marriage. He didn't rescue them from the political order that they were living under. He didn't rescue them from their poverty. It says he rescued them from their distress. You can't do that without entering into it with somebody. It is impossible to rescue someone from their, from their distress and not their circumstances unless you are there also in it. See, I've got good news and bad news, right? Um, if we have a God that's big enough to save us from something or someone, then we have a God who's big enough to redeem the something and someone you need saving from. And we also have a God who's big enough to redeem it through you and through us. That's scary. Do you know what kind of trust that requires? Well, just enough to cry out in our trouble. That's it. That's the gift. See, in exile, Israel learned what might be the hardest lesson for a church like ours or for a 21st century church in America, right, is that the promised land is not a place, it is a presence. The promised land is anywhere God's people are gathered together in Him. That includes when and if, I'm just going to say when, when we think we need a rest from whatever circumstance we, we have, we need rest with that, actually. God loves you too much to deliver you from that, but he loves you too much to not deliver you from your distress in that. My dad um, used to say growing up a lot uh, that, you know, they say that money can't buy happiness, but I would sure love to try it. And I empathize with that way too much. Like, I know my striving isn't going to make me happy and satisfied. But if I don't try it, it's not, I'm never going to know. Like, yeah, but, but then this thing won't happen that I really want to have happen. Sometimes God won't let it happen until you stop striving. And then if you rest in order so that it will happen, God's like, yeah, that don't work either. I want you 
not you checking a box. I want you. That means to rest, to find the satisfaction not in the thing you want from me, but to find satisfaction in me. This rescue refrain that I just read, that then they cried to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from their distress, that rescue's refrain is rest's prerequisite. Because in 33 through 42, it's, he's talking about the needy and the exhausted and the tired, and he needs our neediness and our exhaustion and our tiredness because it's sometimes the only way we are dependent on him. That's the invitation that we are so afraid of. To let that, to trust that God will make us okay even when we don't think our politics are okay or our economy is okay or our relationships are okay or our church is okay or our anything is okay. It doesn't matter. God invites us to know peace and stillness. And in verse, to complement that refrain is another one because in verses 8, 15, 21, and 31, it says, let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love for his wondrous works to the children of man. Guys, we're doing it. That's the invitation. That's what we get to enjoy when we rest is the celebration of God's wondrous work, of his steadfast love. That's the encounter of God. And it all, all of this is foreshadowing the church in Psalm 107. Because God's rescue and God's rest are no longer confined by a place, but because God's presence is no longer confined to a place. God's presence and therefore his rescue and his rest, guys, they're here. They're anywhere the church gathers. They're anywhere you hear the word preached. It's, the, it's anywhere you see the, the sacraments displayed as a, as a sign and seal of the glory of the gospel. That's it. So what do we do? How do we do that? Because some of you came this morning and you're serving, you're volunteering in some capacity or another. And maybe if, if those who are volunteering in Table Kids upstairs listen to this after the fact, you're going to be like, I mean, this doesn't feel real restful when I was not listening to the sermon that Sunday, right? What do we do with that? One thing that I'm very encouraged by, I just want like, just to kind of like raise up and zoom out here a little bit. Man, I love you guys so much. I think one of the coolest things about this church, and one of the things I'm so excited about Michael coming to experience here as a new pastor at the table, is y'all have some incredible and beautiful holy discontent. And, and I mean that. There's no but after that, okay? Well, there might be a little bit, but there's nothing bad about that, right? What I mean by that is you are hungry. You see your need for and want to grow, and y'all are pursuing it. You are working tirelessly to try to grow and to, 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 to become wise and mature and to be transformed by the gospel, to, to be faithful to this church and, and everything. And I, I, I mean all of that. And you do it for the, and honestly, for the right reasons, for, the, for your sake and for the sake of those you love, for the sake of your neighbor and for the glory of God. It's amazing. And I also see you despair sometimes. You despair because it feels so hard. Because growing feels it's like fits and starts and there's backsliding and insert Christianese here to describe the experience of living in a fallen world as a fallen person. And yeah, it's hard. And I want you to hear that it's not hard because you're not working hard enough. It's because you're not resting enough. Let me put it this way. If God is sovereign and he calls us to our place, if he, if he 
orders our steps, even though we may plan them and think we're planning them. He is the one who orders our steps. How can you possibly be not as far along as you should be? Why are you, why are we, like, let me say we because I'm preaching to myself right now, okay? Why do we carry this guilt and act like we should be further along? And that's what we consider. That's what we ponder. That's what we chew on. Not the steadfast love of God that is, is incredible despite that. Because that's actually the, the very mechanism and the means by which we grow. It's by resting in the truth that He will do it. There's good news. More good news. Until you see that this love is impossible, growing in it will be impossible. The solution is actually to take that guilt and shame you may feel and be carrying and to say, yeah, it's actually worse than we think. But God's love is more steadfast, more gratuitous, more obscene, more insane, more ludicrous and, and gratuitous than we could possibly fathom. There is nothing, neither height nor depth, nor breadth, nor anything else in all creation or outside of the natural world, supernatural or otherwise, that can take you from God's love. That's not because you're awesome, it's because He is. Okay? I want to redefine, whenever we talk about R&R, do not think rest and, and recreation or rest and relaxation. I want you to hear rescue and rest. Okay? And this is the last thing I'm going to do before we jump into the Q&A. So if you have a question, please jump in. But like, if, I had to, if, you, if you didn't hear anything I've said so far, here's, here's what I want you to hear. Okay? Three things. One, stop striving against God and start crying out to Him. You can put it down. Whatever it is, you can put it down and cry out to Him. Whenever you pick it back up again, put it down and cry out to Him. Whatever it is, whether it's your phone, whether it's your anger, whether it's your lust, whether it's your addiction, whether it's your habits, whether it's your past, whether it's your future, put it down, cry out to Him. Okay? Whatever exile you are experiencing, whether you are lost in longing, guilty and caught, addicted and ashamed, finite and fed up, doesn't matter. What the psalmist is trying to tell us is that rescue is here. Rescue is at hand. Reach out. Grab it. Two, contemplate and celebrate. Contemplate and celebrate. Again, congratulations, you're doing these things. Literally right now. That's what worship is, is contemplating and celebrating God's steadfast love. Verse 43, when it says, attend to these things, that of course is more than just attending and showing up to weekly worship, but it is never, ever, 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 ever less than that. Period. Jesus said to the disciples and says to us, the man was not made for the Sabbath, but Sabbath was made for man. It's for our good. The mountains won't heal you like his word can. That trip that you're planning won't heal you and restore you like his word can. Sleeping in, preach to myself, won't energize you like his word can. Finishing and getting a head start on work on Sunday after you leave here. If you're wondering if I'm talking about you, the answer is yes. 
will not satisfy you or your boss like his word can. His his word won't return void. Whether you do anything with it or not, it affects us. Our literally hearing God's word has a supernatural effect in the short and long term. You don't know, you can, just because you don't see what God is doing in you does not mean he's not doing something in you. Lastly, keep resting and repeating. Do it again. Keep doing it. That's the wisdom. That's the considering. That's the attending to. You need to hear me say that, like some of you, okay, let me put it this way. For some of you, rest might look like doing fewer fun things. For some of you, resting might be trusting God to keep the world going long enough to do a fun thing. (laughs) To enjoy your creatureliness. Did you know that God is a father who loves to give good gifts to his children? I know we talked about that. Okay. We can talk about my Lego hobby slash habit later. Okay. Rest is more than not striving. Rest isn't just stopping, it's enjoying, both in our creatureliness and our sonship, both as finite image bearers and sons of the Most High. Enjoy Him, because you can trust God enough to nap in a storm while everybody else is freaking out, I promise you. Actually, Jesus does. Okay. Okay. God loves you to Pluto and back more times than you can count. He loves you from exile and striving to rescue and rest. Kicking and screaming if necessary. And I know that's scary, but I want you to hear when he says, why are you so afraid? The implicit answer is you need not be. When he says, where is your faith? You need to hear him invite you into trusting him for your rescue and your rest. All right, let me see what questions we got. 11 of them, cool. Um, Okay, how can we cultivate rest? Like, shocker, sermon on rest in Boulder County resonated, okay. How can we cultivate rest in our busy lives? Um, Yes, I see the irony of the words cultivate and busy, which both sound counterintuitive to rest. (laughs) Um, It's a very good point. Rest is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to striving. Rest actually takes some effort to put down the striving. It might feel like work, actually. And we can talk about all kinds of different strategies. If this is you, please come find me. This is a really hard thing for me. And I am happy to share what few successes and many failures I have to share with that. But stop striving, start crying out, contemplate and celebrate, and repeat. Uh, Next question. If you could give a simple definition, how would you define faith? Many... Christians seem to indicate that faith is action-based, which always gets condemning. Think prosperity gospel. Do you think that faith is something we do, or can it always be seen as rest that only comes from the Holy Spirit, not from our own efforts? Um, okay, so when I said rest, when I said before, rest was not opposed to effort; it was it's opposed to striving. Uh, another way of saying that is the original quote from Dallas Willard is. Uh, uh, Grace is not opposed to effort, it's opposed to earning. Our response to grace, Jesus says, should pick up your cross and follow me. 
Trust means not caring about the outcome so much as we are pursuing Jesus in everything, in both his means and his ends, and trusting him to produce the outcome and not having us, our having to produce the outcome. And so when we're talking about rest, we're talking, you know, let me just boil it down to this. The, if, if the only effort you make into resting by grace is to show up to this church, whatever church you go to, if you're visiting from, from afar, like just faithfully show up, you should know that it's actually for your good that God says, keep the Sabbath and keep it holy. And that, that is, there's no definition in Scripture where that is apart from the gathered people of God. It's, it's nonsensical. And I would just encourage you, like, if you show up and you, you put the effort to do that, then, man, look out what God's going to do to you. It's going to be awesome. Okay, the Psalms describe a lot of dramatic physical afflictions, enemies pursuing fear of death, wandering in the wilderness, severe storms. Are these meant primarily to depict metaphorical afflictions? Is that how the Psalms have historically been interpreted? Um, yes and no. It's, it's a both and. So th this is a, a, a literary genre that is using imagery uh, to describe real literal experiences. And so it's a both and. And so the way that we understand the Psalms as the New Testament church means that we understand that this could be either, either one. But I'll tell you what, if, if God sustains you and rescues you and helps you rest from exile that's geographic and Babylon, I guarantee you it's going to apply to Boulder County too. So it's not that like that's what this was intended for, but it's an abs absolutely a very... That is exactly how it should be applied, though, if that makes sense. Last question. What might it have looked like for the disciples to have rested through the storm while Jesus slept? I have no idea. I, I, man, I, I'd be freaking out, too. I know Jesus and who he is and he's God and everything, and I could see him sleeping on the, the stern, and if I'm honest with myself, I'd still be like, are you sure about this? Right? Like, I know you care, but, like, I don't... Maybe you think too highly of me that you think that I'm, I'm good with this, like that my faith will, will keep me calm and at peace and like I ain't there. And I think part of the point of that is to give us the encouragement that like, yeah, when you freak out, he loves you still then too. That even, even his rescue and his rest are not conditional to how, how good you do at it, to, to like how okay you are with it when you try it. That's how invitations work. They don't... If it's... If they didn't, we'd call it an application, right? To a college or a university, like an application to be God's beloved son. Or It doesn't work that way. It's an invitation. All right. Communion is this concrete,